I have long been aware that most of my search engine optimization is being taken up by Paul Salt, who works for BBC Merseyside, uh, sort of radio up in Newcastle. Yeah. I've long been aware of it, and I'm very irritated by it, I assure you. I would be. But I've never before really looked into it, or like looked into the paraphernalia around other Paul Salt, and I decided to do so the other day. And I've got to say, the results were pretty fucking weird. It's an important day at BBC Radio Merseyside. Presenter Paul Salt prepares to pitch a big idea to Everton's Ian Snowden and Liverpool's Gary Gillespie. It's just odd. Everton's Ian Snowden, everyone. Ian Snowden. Yeah, it's just weird seeing, hearing my rubbish name being used in the context of, like, the BBC. <laughs> A rubbish BBC thing. Yeah, and a rubbish yeah, and an admittedly rubbish Northern BBC thing. Um, Northern is not a modifier that counts there, but it does in some ways. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. Let's 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 hear from the from the salty man himself. Guys, I've got it. I've got it. The name for the new show. There you go. What do you think, Paul Salt and guests? You're using our name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> there's more. There's more Cockney to go in there. You've got to not pronounce the L. Any either yeah. of the L's. Paul, Paul Salt. Paul, yeah, Paul it's, Salt. It's, Paul, it's pronounced Paul Salt, Paul mate. Salt can. Paul, Paul Salt. That's not <laughs> that's, right. And that's an attack. That's an attack on everything you stand for. <laughs> it's a dissonant attack. Paul Salt. BBC Radio Merseyside. <laughs> <laughs> that's how your nightmare began. <laughs> <laughs> that's how the last part of my life Someone went. hands the mic over to you. That's, that's how that works And now it's time for Jeremy Clarkson There you go mate <laughs> They pass it over to Jeremy Clarkson um, I don't know, there is something reassuring about it though Because having listened to a bit of Paul Salt I don't feel he's done significantly more with my, with our name <laughs> I don't feel outmatched by Mr. Paul Salt I feel like we're just about on par in terms of our broadcasting ability Yeah, an, an international amateur podcast Has about as much reach as a Merseyside radio show. <laughs> I'm sure our numbers are, e- are similar, at the very <laughs> least. Don't prove us wrong, though. Please. Please don't. Please don't come at us with that. We can't We can't stand it. Just let us be wrong. It's fine. <laughs> it doesn't matter that much in the greater scheme of things. Most of the things we say are wrong. This is one of them. This is just one of those things. I mean... It makes us happy. In many ways, it could be worse. Firing Line with William F. Buckley Jr. Tonight's guest... Noted author Paul Goodman. Yes. Our topic, are public schools necessary, Mr. Buckley? Mm. <laughs> Ooh. Now, is this Ooh. the um, the philosopher-poet Paul Goodman? Yeah, this is the philosopher-poet Paul Goodman. Um, but that's not the only way to describe Paul Goodman. Uh, Mr. Paul Goodman uh, is, roughly speaking, everything, uh, except, as far as I know, a basketball player. <laughs> uh, everything else he excels in. <laughs> couple of things on that first of all that guy's fucking voice is superb secondly just the 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 fucking disgust with which he enunciates basketball player (laughs) a lowly sportsman (laughs) except for a sports person picture if you will a sportsman (laughs) i did however whilst looking for these clips find this particular line from the uh legendary poet and basketballman um, Paul Goodman. I do think that uh, it's a sign of a good society that it is possible to live in decent poverty, especially if you so choose. That is, if you have more important things to do than to make money. Fuck me, do I agree with that? <laughs> yeah, I've fuck never agreed yeah, with Paul any Goodman. statement more than that. <laughs> You've never agreed with anything I've said that much. <laughs> 
think I've ever heard anything as true as that. That's <laughs> legendary. But hey, he's not the only Paul Goodman out there. Oh, good. Hey, everybody. I'm Paul Goodman, strength and conditioning coach with the Chicago Blackhawks. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Paul Goodman's out there. Just the fucking pinnacles of intellectual and physical health. <laughs> that's, that's, that explains my situation. <laughs> Me, all right. Well, meanwhile, let's check back in with Salty. Jumping jacks. Okay, you mean like a star... Like a star drum? Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got enough room. I might take out the microphone. Okay. I'm doing them! Oh, I'm sweating! Yeah! Oh, I've got, I've got a sweat on there, Suey. Oh, everything's better in the North. <laughs> including, including and especially Paul Salt. So check him out on BBC Radio Merseyside. that's all the more beautiful because of its oh I've got sick on the microphone again <laughs> oh no shit that last time you were trying to be perfect <laughs> it's just one of our lovable flaws <laughs> it's another six episode you loathe what that means yeah. a nebulous concept only important to us and sometimes not even that yeah barely <laughs> this time we're discussing perfect movies can a movie yeah. be perfect? No. Can a movie be said to be objectively good? No. If so what are these so called perfect films? your mum are we so self-hating that we can concede our own favourite films are distinct from the movies that other people would consider flawless? Yes. Which of these questions are we going to answer first? And isn't that second one just rephrasing the first? Find out now. Yes, it was. <laughs> okay, good. I didn't know how to answer that last one. <laughs> so, Paul, you sinner-assed. Uh, hello. Can a movie be perfect? And how would we know if it was? Um, yes, it can be perfect because I'm me. And <gasps> what what I think is, is different to, to the mob uh, if anybody disagrees with me, it means they're wrong. They hate everything I stand for. And why don't I just set light to their house anyway? Well, I mean, you're the protagonist. You're the, you're the one the who thinks and feels life. and reflects on things. Everyone else doesn't. I don't need to obey traffic laws <laughs> or tax laws or murder laws. Those are written, to, me. Keep, those are written to keep me safe, not everyone else safe yeah. from me. That wouldn't make any sense. Exactly. So it did explain why when I, when I was looking at Rotten Tomatoes at some of uh, what I consider to be perfect movies, I read every <laughs> single one of the bad reviews in a shitty voice. <laughs> it does help, doesn't it? Makes it, it does, because obviously they're clowns with no <laughs> no moral fiber in them to to, to have like not not connected with uh, like a subjective piece of art in yeah. the exact same way that I did. Yeah, I would probably hate that also. <laughs> I mean, what really helps is if you read the good reviews in the shitty voice as well. Uh, uh, tour de force change the face of cinema wazzock what a wanker absolute spanner <laughs> um what was the question <laughs> can a movie be perfect can a movie be perfect oh i, I look i would love to justify this episode <laughs> but uh right off the bat <laughs> look we have to we have to arrive at this we can't just start here <laughs> no <laughs> yeah anyway how have you been <laughs> That's great. Oh, not too bad. Aunt, Auntie Mary, really. <laughs> I think everywhere, all over the table. Let's pretend a movie could be perfect and have a few a thought. Yeah. Have a thought. Have a thought about how it might be. I will try. Perfect, because I think 
the first thing to talk about is intention. Because if our definition of perfect is limited to the creator realizing their intention, then I think it becomes, first of all, a bit of a guessing game. And it also lowers the mm. standard somewhat. Mm. Because if Adam Sandler actually set out to make a co- uh, to make a movie that wasn't intended to be funny just in order to ap- appeal to mass audiences, then Jack and Jill is a perfect film, if that was his yeah. intention. So I think we probably have to try and arrive at some form of criteria independent of the intentions of the filmmaker. Yeah. But we can then decide whether or not the same criteria should apply to every movie or if intention gets in the way there, you know, like intentional. Yeah. Okay. For example, alien, you downplay some elements to make a point. There's a lack of warmth or humanity in alien that could be read Mm. as a fault, but it's part of the greater scheme of alienation in the future. Yeah. The first one that came to mind when, uh, coming coming up with a few was 2001 which yeah uh you know the big complaint there is yeah cold inhuman emotionless which people unlike when people level that complaints against something like you know nolan movies and interstellar i can argue i don't agree i don't think they are cold with mm. 2001 you know you can objectively kind of point to it and say yes it has limited characterization of its human characters yeah but it's still brilliant, still one of the best films ever, and you can argue that the poor characterization works the poor characterization works in favour of its greater themes. I, I would say it's intentional and yeah, it's 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 working towards those greater themes. Um and, yeah. and I would also add on to that that I didn't find the characters unrelatable. I've really liked the characters. Um mm. and, I, and I would say that there there was enough. Um because you don't well, you don't need dialogue to, to get this across. Not dialogue, but I mean in terms of they're very detached. Like, take, for example, the scene where the character who's not Bowman, the one who dies, um, <laughs> mm. is on his sort of bed and he's reclining and he asks mm. Hal to elevate his head a bit. And he's got a message from his family. Mm. It's his birthday and the family are just sort of, you know, saying, oh, happy birthday, you know, all the rest of it. And he just has no reaction whatsoever. Yeah. Now, you can definitely talk about how that ties into themes of alienation, the sort of coldness of communication yeah. at a distance, which was very ahead of its time. But it does still represent limited emotional involvement from the audience. It's just that we would say that is intentional. Yeah, even then, though, it, it, it wasn't limited emotional involvement with me. It's something I connected yeah. with really, really deeply. Um, that's that alienation and, and sense of detachment. It's pretty ubiquitous nowadays. So, yeah, it's, I guess, well, here's the problem, the subject, subjective nature of... Yeah, of, you're getting um, into, like, the Kuleshov effect there. The Kuleshov effect being if you just show a face... And then, mm. based on the context, you know, based on the context around it, what you then cut to after the face changes how people perceive that face. If you have the exact same face and follow it by a kitten, then then suddenly people think, "Oh, that guy's you mm. know really happy to see the kitten." Follow it with a sexy yeah. lady, it's like, "Oh, that guy's really lecherous," and it's just a guy doing a face. Yeah. And the more plain and expressionless the face, the more people are able to project their own emotions onto it based on context, which is why Keanu Reeves mm. works. So <laughs> it's always worked. Yeah, I guess this is my. Um, then we're we're back to this. We're back then to the idea that intention is is everything. Someone who's who's entirely aware of what they're doing and and what they're trying to get across is is going to be is is going to be close to making a perfect film. Again, I still I'm still reluctant to con- to consider tension too far because then you're sort of you know guessing at what the intentions were, either yeah. based on reading actual inter- interviews yeah. or something that were external to no, the work, course. or based on its effect on you, and that effect on you is subjective and therefore not something you can easily extract 
hard judgments about you know the film from yeah for sure it's like you know the guy who is absolutely convinced that you know a songwriter is writing songs is specifically for them he believes that was their intention but it's just the effect it's having on him or her yeah i I think you have to you have to go with intent and you have to go with impact and you have to go with end end result and and just look at everything holistically if we can decide that that criteria you know doesn't work for everything we can still look at what those criteria would be even if you were to apply them to every film because Hmm. one thing is when it comes to film criticism you could try to make a distinction between technical factors and more emotive qualities emotive Hmm. qualities being stuff like it reached me on an emotional level i really related Hmm. to the characters things that whilst aided by technical factors are harder to quantify and Hmm. then technical factors could be things like good lighting coherent editing cinematography Mm. that is consistent with the tone of the film well-developed characters the problem is i'm already using a bunch of adjectives that feel poorly defined you know Mm. what makes lighting good exactly is that a matter of taste or is it something that can be judged perhaps lighting can never be good or bad but only ever appropriate or inappropriate and is that objective Mm. so yeah i think the idea of having like check boxes and I've been accused yeah. of being a film critic and therefore having a checkbox of things that I would tick off as, as I watched the movie, you know, to decide whether or not mm. I liked it or not. And it's just ridiculous. No one would I, watch I, films that way. It would be it, it would be like being a quantity surveyor of film. And it's all just mm. a, an attempt to sort of dismiss you as a cold and, you know, yeah. log- well, I, I think emotionless being. We're, we're all guilty of this, right? We, when we don't connect with the film, we're, we're way more susceptible to its faults and, and we are it's, it's way easier to find and pick out the flaws. If, mm. if, if you're connected to the story and you're engaged, then you don't mind if there are plot holes or yeah, you think, oh, this this that was a strange line or something. But if you're sat there and, and you're really not enjoying it, then every little thing, you know, it, it stands out. So movie criticism is still a, a thing of passion, right? Especially, you know, if you just watch Mark Care mode. Yeah. So I, 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 I don't think that that stands as an argument. If, if, if you don't like it, then it's the same as a non-professional movie critic not liking something. We all take the same yeah. like offensive approach to it. Yeah, it's still the same process of just watching and following your emotion. And mm. even beyond accepting something for its flaws, when you really love something, you love its flaws as well. And sometimes yeah. because of the subjective nature of judging these things, something that one person says is a flaw is another person's virtue. Someone who says, oh, this movie mm. didn't have a good pl- plot structure. To someone else, that would be a, an absolute selling point. Yeah, They would say, thank God it didn't have a plot structure. You know, it was able to tell a much more interesting story or not even tell a story at all. Just really get into its characters mm. as a result. So, yeah, if it, everyone in that cinema perhaps subconsciously would have a list of things that would tick off for them whether or not this was an enjoyable or an unenjoyable thing things they're mm. not even aware of, and they would contradict each other. Yeah. I mean, what, what I found now as I approach my 34th year on mm. this earth is that I, I tend to contradict myself in every sentence. <laughs> M- movie watching is, is a very good example of this. Um, I just try not to talk about anything ever anymore. <laughs> it's for the best. Yeah. The lighthouse beckons. Then you've just <laughs> got to impress one person, and it's well, MD Foe, and he's not going to be impressed, oh. so fuck it. Shit. <laughs> he's seen a lot. He's seen a lot, and he's just not impressed by any of it. You can't. What, what interests me, and what mm. really was the point of this whole thing, is the idea that you can point at something and say, that's objectively incorrect or not very good, but not be emotionally affected by that. 
and not let it ruin the film for you. Because that's, I think, one of the things that makes discussing films so difficult sometimes. Because mm. yes, The Last Jedi, for example, contradicts some of its established, some of the established law of the franchise, but in mm-hmm. ways that are significant to some and insignificant mm. to others, most, I think. <laughs> and some people will get hung up on not knowing how Bruce Wayne got into Gotham. Sincerely. Yeah. Previously, we've described that as like a symptom of a greater lack of investment. And yes, it is. But the fact is, it will genuinely bother some people more than us, mm. you know, and it will bother them to not know how it happened. Other people are entirely unbothered and can even suggest that slowing down the movie to explain how he got back into Gotham would ruin the pacing of the mm. climax. You so, don't think that's tied to, to not being invested? I mean, I think it could be entirely possible. And I've heard people say that they were very invested into a, in a movie until something happened. Yeah, right. And then they explain what the something was and you just think, wow, who could possibly care about that? <laughs> but that, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't invalidate the way that they feel. Mm. And sometimes we've attempted to do that. I think in our um, good, uh, one good thing about good movies thing, we suggested that, oh, they haven't thought enough about it, you know, and they haven't really come to terms with what their problem with this film was. But I have heard, you know, testimony from people who say that they were into a film until a certain illogical thing happened, illogical to mm. them, and they just couldn't follow it anymore. And I don't think that's ever happened to me. And maybe that's what makes it so hard to relate mm. to. But I, I, I mustn't. I, I don't think I want to doubt that it can happen. It must be very frustrating. Yeah, it might have happened to if me. If you're enjoying a movie, I wouldn't. Um, may have. I'm I wouldn't meant to be dismissive about something like that. Perhaps I know I'm dis- dismissive sure. about people using the word pretentious freely. Uh, if, if for me at least now the dismissiveness of it and hmm. like the offhand way something is disregarded. Yes, it can feel like that, which hurts, and you want to strike back at that. And it, 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 that demands more engagement, I think. Yeah. It's always best just to sort of analyse that. But that's just, that's just language, the dismissive, like, dismissive language somebody might use. But as, a, as yeah. for feeling that way about a certain event in a movie, again, it must, it must have happened. I'm, I mostly yeah. remember our conversations and nothing else. <laughs> I'm trying to think, the only thing that popped into my head was Valerian. Yeah. Which was a movie I was enjoying in a very much a sense of, wow, this is a flawed film, but I'm having quite a f- lot of mm. fun with it. Um, but nevertheless, did have that moment where suddenly there was that large digression. Um, and it wasn't the only thing I took issue with, but I do remember this large digressionary point where they go off on a side adventure for a good 20, 30 minutes of the film and then come right back to where they were when they left off. And I do yeah. remember thinking, oh, I wish they tied that in better. <laughs> so that's, no, they that's the, the last only, Jedi. <laughs> that's the only similar thing I can think of. Yeah, the very least yeah. thematically similar would be good. Yeah. Well, I mm. guess the, the difference there for me is when we did that episode, mm. uh, my defense of Valerian, and yeah. and you sort of systematically took it apart. <laughs> my tolerance um, of Valerian. I was just yeah. playing devil's advocate, I think, for quite a bit of that. I did, you know, enjoy it. But, I remember. And yeah. I think we did conclude the, that way. The difference is, after that, I kind of went, oh, yeah, okay, I'm thinking about it. It doesn't, it's not quite as good as I thought when I was watching it. Mm. But the difference would be with the criticism of 2001 or, you know, any of my favourite films or just a lot of good movies out there. You're able usually to find a justification for it. Mm. Well, well that, that was intentional. That was blah. So there's a difference between films like that where it's all part of the movie for you and and it doesn't affect how much you enjoy it and then there are movies like valerian where once it's pointed out to you at least for me i can take a step back and go oh yeah that is a good point yeah so there are faults that you accept and faults that you deny i guess in these things and yeah 
you know, and in denial, um, I mean sort of accept as well. It, it's um or not accept because that's what I said about the other thing. Um, there are faults that you kind of accept. Yes, that is a problem with this movie, but it doesn't bother me that much. And then there are things where you say, no, that's not a fault. That's you know part of the overall thing. So yes, yeah, it's it's curious. It's curious the way to, the way in which we consider our favorite films in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, another fucking problem in deciding if a film is perfect <laughs> or not is that it's near impossible to separate a film from the context of its release. Um, you know, the fact that Tenet was the first film I saw after lockdown will have had an impact of some sorts on my opinion, you know, and did Orson Welles direct a perfect film after Citizen Kane? Literally no one cares to look because the narrative of a young filmmaker who peaked early, making one of the best films ever made in his twenties and then never made a great movie again is more interesting Mm. to a lot of people than checking out how his actual great films played out in the rest of his career. Because there are some great ones back there. But oh, I don't, don't doubt it. Will I watch it? Probably next time around yours. <laughs> next time I make you watch it. Context will always be important. No film is ever made in a vacuum, mm. and sometimes that can affect things as well. You read about the film, you know, the Babe Ruth story got good write-ups when it was released. You know, so a movie mm. that might be well-regarded mm. in its time, over time becomes, yeah. when you remove it from the context of the sort of, you know, society in which that film is made, suddenly its impact diminishes, perhaps. I mean, after we fix racism, maybe that'll make a lot of the um, great films that are being made at the moment, you know, seem abstract. Yeah, it's coming. It's very soon, I think. Very soon. I've I've got very good feelings mm-hmm. um, about Trump's second term. I think he's going to finally uh, <laughs> knock it out of the park. <laughs> Babe Ruth style. But I mean, this this is interesting because now I go back to my... the the movies that I've scrounged up as perfect... I have such an emotional attachment to them. It was so yeah. difficult for me to think of technically, to think of a technically perfect movie. Yes. But then feel like it was justified putting it in my perfect movies list on, mm. on technicality alone was just not going to fly. So the ones I've got in my list are ones that I have a great emotional attachment to. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a part of it because ultimately in deciding, you know, this list of films that you admire versus films that you actually like, I think they are out there, but they will be harder to argue in favor of because you need to have that emotional investment sort of backing you up. But yeah. in your search for films considered flawless in some sort of you know ridiculous empirical way, you may think to check uh, Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic. After all, they've been perhaps arbitrarily quantifying the art of criticism for years. Well, mm. having 100% on Rotten Tomatoes only really means that everyone at least liked your movie a bit. If you have nothing but three and four star reviews, that's 100%, uh, which is probably why there's so many of the goddamn things, including films like James Whale's Frankenstein, which isn't even in color. Oh, what? Rubbish. Absolute balls. Um, Far harder to please is Metacritic, which determines its score based on the individual scores of the reviewers. Mm. So if you had nothing but four star reviews, you'd get 80% on Metacritic. And so to have a score of 100%, you would need nothing but five-star reviews. One four-star, and you're down in the 90s. Uh, From what I can tell, there have been 18 of these um, made in the history of film. And they include things like Fanny and Alexander, Vertigo, Three Colors Red, Casablanca, The Godfather, Citizen Kane, Wizard of Oz, and Boyhood. Oh, now. (laughs) Is that a joke? All classics. No, it's genuine. Wow. Okay. Well, there yeah. we go. The whole episode's over. I did... Um, <laughs> actually, I did consider The Godfather and Fanny and Alexander um, oh, right. for my for my list. Um, yeah. Fanny and Alexander, definitely, because it's fucking Bergman. 
Um, it's fairly and, late Bergman. It, yeah, and, and it is yeah. just it is a precise, like yeah, tight five-hour film. Yeah, but um, I do I love Fanny Alexander because it it represents the later stages of Bergman's career, which mm. I found personally quite challenging. It's the point when he moved yeah. on from the slightly more existential, well, I say existential. existential kind of literally existential um, faith-based films that he was making yeah. in the middle of his career, which um, is the stuff I like best, to yeah. the very domestic existential kind of just the misery of marriage. Somber, and, yeah. Yeah, the absolute horror of being in a domestic situation. Um, movies like Scenes from a Marriage and, you know, yeah, uh, yeah just films like that. It's it's a little more <laughs> it's a little uh, less fun for me but fanny alexander yeah. represents this late period movie where suddenly it's absolutely packed full of the whimsy and wonder yes. that characterizes his middle career um but in this still very tense film that examines a domestic situation and you know mm. the adoptive family that you mm. know um the kids end up with it's you know pure late stage bergman so yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the, like, the Godfather was also yeah. in there because I do think the Godfather is better than the Godfather Two for a start. You know um, what? I would probably this is interesting because I would probably say that the Godfather is closer to being empirically perfect than the Godfather Part Two, but my preference would always go to Godfather Part Two. Ah, so interesting. That would be an example of when the perfect film is not the same as you know the one yeah, I like sure. best. Yeah. And and an, an example of how I always yeah I love empirically perfect films. Um, <laughs> Uh, we we watched them in in uh, pretty much back to back in the last couple of years and mm. so just side by side just the the emotional attachment to the first one just in, just conveyed and encapsulated so much more despite the fact that the technical aspects of Godfather two like the parallel storytelling telling mm. and the incredible performances from Pacino and De Niro mm. yeah the emotional connection was not as strong interesting interesting so. Said mm. pretty much the same thing about the opposing movie, <laughs> but then did it go and end up in my perfect movies list? It ended up in the short list, yeah, that's for sure. But we'll we'll get to that shortly. Um, before that, something did occur to me late on in the process of preparing for this, and mm. it was actually whilst I was reading through some of the fantastic OG team suggestions, uh, which mm. you'll be hearing shortly. Um, it occurred to me mm. that I've defined perfect in a very specific way and there is another way of looking at it uh, which we have been talking about a little bit um a perfect film may not be a film that can be measured as such based on critical consensus or any sort of empirical um measuring you know apparatus mm. you might want to subject to it a perfect film can be judged by each of us individually um and that would be different from believing a film is perfect for us it says a lot mm. about how we personally consider films and the opposing arguments that we would consider valid or invalid, you know, to gauge whether or not we decide a film is perfect, regardless of whether or not we actually like it. Mm. In particular, we can judge films to be perfect and yet not right for us, and we can perhaps identify films that we admire but not like. So, yeah, it was... I'd be very interested. I don't know if um, the OG team have responded in such a way. I think a lot of them have responded with movies that they themselves actually really like. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, I'd be curious to sort of have a think about that, to think about the films that you sort of reluctantly agree are perfect, um, yeah. which is still subjective, but still would say an awful lot about what you I'd, consider to be, you know, cinema at its purest. I'd really have to, really have to think about that. I'd have to see yeah, sure. a list of all the films I've ever seen, because I can't think of one <laughs> that I would, that I dislike, but admit is yeah, technically brilliant. 
Yeah, it's very hard to separate some. the two things, you know, to say... I mean, for mm. a while I probably would have argued Tree of Life, but then even then, back when I disliked Tree of Life, I would have actual reasons for disliking it that I felt were yeah. objective criticisms of the film, such as the aimlessness, mm. such as the... You know, I, I probably would have used the word pretentiousness of the, the voiceover because mm. I felt that it was presenting as having more substance than it really did, which is, mm. you know, how I would have understood pretension. Yeah, but, sure. You know, subsequent rewatches have made me reevaluate Tree of Life, but even at the time, I would probably have not identified it as a perfect film until I actually fell in love with it. So maybe it is yeah. just not something that happens. Mm-hmm. In any case, uh, we have selected three movies each, and we shall now try and convince the other and ourselves uh, that they are perfect films. Uh, the aim is not to win or lose, because after all, we'll both die eventually but instead to discover if we can really decide if a film is objectively perfect, even amongst ourselves, two assholes. So, uh, we're limited to films that we know the other has seen, so Wong Kar Wai can take a hike, even though In the Mood for Love is definitely the right answer to this. Um, We also agreed nothing we covered in our pure cinema discussion, even though, again, Mad Max Fury Road is the right answer. So, oh, we can have movies from our personal top tens, uh, but it will be interesting to see how our suggestions differ from those films. Um, yeah. yeah. How many? How many, Paul? How many do you reckon are in my top ten of the three? <laughs> of the three, four. Lucky guess. <laughs> oh, I made this list by brainstorming films that I felt were perfect, and then googling negative reviews and seeing if I felt those reviews were identifying subjective or objective issues, mm-hmm. uh, which was itself a subjective decision on my part. So, if this at all proves you know anything, it's that you can't quantify art, uh, quantify art. But uh, hey, let's do it anyway. So. Your first pick. Well, the Coens themselves are, are pretty formidable, and it's, it's rare yes. that I come out of a film and think, yeah, that was a misstep, or even that one particular moment was. Mm. I rewatched Inside Lewin Davis recently, uh, and it has to be the sort of fifth, sixth time I've seen it, and whilst it was going on midway through, I just, I, I, I turned and said to Nell, this is pretty much perfect. <laughs> There's not a wrong foot yeah. here at any point like every inch of this yeah you've got to marvel at how aimless yet decisive the movie feels and because it- <laughs> you <laughs> i'm sorry i've pulled up some negative reviews you yeah. know to um to try and challenge this with and the first one i read was um the exact opposite of the sentence you just said so i'm guessing this has guided your uh <laughs> well <writing> yeah <laughs> so i was going through my pluses before getting onto the list of criticisms that i found um sure you know to, to me that the dialogue is tight the cinematography is lush that the, the soundtrack is just wonderful it's a um a, a lot of it is taken from the work of dave van ronk with a, with a lot yeah. of folk music tied in there and um one or two original tracks mm. um especially please mr kennedy which again reading through the process <laughs> of how they came about writing that yeah of how important it is to write a great song that you present as bad because you can't put a bad song in a film and have people enjoy it and the yeah the like the creative process behind that involving the directors the um one of the writers and the actors it's experience exponentially so um there's just right. so much going into making this the use of silence in the, in this film is stunning when he's playing to his dad when he's playing to the the, the record company yeah guy and then the, the the sense of progression in it without anything major changing feels like the ultimate cohen practical joke yeah what i love about watching the the, the best cohen's is feeling like you can you're just in the palm of their hand and, and they are manipul- manipulating mm. you how they see fit so yeah yeah then loading a rotten tomatoes and seeing uh mm. pretentious meandering no character development. Uh, nothing happens. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. Joyless, melancholic, pre- pretentious, 
no character development, joyless and melancholic, I would say, are some of the main traits of Lewin Davis mm. as, as the character, not, not as the movie. Um, right. does, does that make sense? I think so. It's the idea that he himself embodies some of these yeah. criticisms and that the, um, yeah. the, the some of the critics might be mistaking his voice with that of the um, filmmakers. I think there's an aspect to that. I think there's also yeah. potentially an element that this is a film that feels very personal to a particular person's journey. You know, it is um, Llewellyn Davis as a creative individual in a city that is largely um, indifferent to his suffering and a business that does not need him or, you know, particularly value him. And Playing a style of folk music that is 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 out of date as a new yeah. as a new one takes its place. Yeah, and he's not he's now even in a, as a result of losing his partnership. Um, not even welcome within his own sort of niche that he had previously found success in. So he's at square one. He's impregnated yeah. a woman who wants nothing to do with him. It's, you know, it, he's very much a dejected person. And whilst mm. the Coen brothers are portraying that on a very human level, I can see how for some people they would perceive that kind of life style because he's also quite a self-serving, mm. kind of selfish, egotistical yeah. character. And, you know, seeing a study of a character like that is going to be intoxicating to some, but I can see how some mm. others would not feel engaged and would ask, you know, why am I experiencing a film from this perspective? But then that, that just boils down to, do people not want to see movies about negative things, about negative emotions? Well, I mean, indeed. I mean, this comes down, I guess, to taste because some people, I guess, wouldn't, or at least they would say, you know, based on some of the cause of pretentiousness here, they would say that they want to see suffering that they can more readily identify with or that they feel is more mm. supposedly worthy of, you know, cinematic mm. capturing than just despondency. Because in general, it can be hard to articulate emotions like boredom in a way that mm. isn't boring, you know? And Llewellyn <laughs> Davis is ultimately, you know, as much as he suffers, often quite bored at his mm. surroundings. So, yeah, yeah. You, it's interesting. It's interesting how people, I guess, based on their own baggage, would come in and take issue with with that based on just where they are in life and it just goes to show that the more personal you make a film i guess the more likely you are to lock people out but also to really speak to the people that you do manage to speak to and it is worth pointing yeah. out although we're fixating on negative reviews we both had to scroll past a whole bunch of negative of positive reviews to get these it's like picking them out you know yeah. the little green ones yeah for sure you know i i read reviews saying one in particular which is really apt. It was um, mm. skip this as your holiday movie, mm. you know, you're, like for a mainstream audience, yeah, who do just want to watch Jack and Jill. <laughs> this is yeah, not going to be their perfect movie. I actually picked um as one of my backup picks, uh, True Grit by the Coen Brothers, and oh, okay, it's interesting. One of the um, one of the recurring pieces of criticism I came on was the fact that it was released at Christmas, and some people felt it was too nihilistic for that season. So and then mm. you know David Fincher comes along with Girl Dragon Tattoo and just leans into it. So, yeah, mm. it's interesting how even release date can affect some people's opinions of a film. Which is just, I think I'm going to end this episode as um, either a nihilist or a misanthrope, <laughs> like even more so. <laughs> I potentially felt more positively about Murder on the Orient Express because it was released at Christmas. It felt like a sort of yeah. adventurey kind of Saturday Sunday evening kind of movie and that just mm. put me in a warm fuzzy place at that time of year funny how that seems that's fine but to not enjoy something because of the time of year it's out seems ridiculous and fickle yeah <laughs> hey we are all ridiculous and fickle unfortunately but yeah no, fuck it's you. interesting <laughs> 
Um, Fuck you, but I love you. It's one of those instances where the criticisms, criticisms leveled at this film can just be flipped around as reasons why I love it. Mm. Yes, if there is no character development for this, or there is limited character development, I would say, for um, Oscar Isaac's Lewin Davis. Yeah. Um, but that is the point. In his limited scope, what realisations he does have, what little gains he does have, bookended by mm. pretty much the same... He's attacked by somebody for just mouthing off in a folk club. Mm. The, no- the nothing happens, the pretentious, you know, how I feel about those things. And the joyless mm. and melancholic, you know, I, I will say I've read things like Emma, where, I think it's Emma, yeah, where a book about sort of vapid high society comes across as vapid. Sure. So it's hard. Again, if I wasn't invested, so it's it's it can make you feel really cold. Yeah, I guess that's but I have, it. I, that... I do have real emotional investment. That's movie. good. That's good insight because potentially that is how some people felt about this film, and you can mm. argue no, it's different because because because. But ultimately, the reason that you felt that way about the characters in Emma will have been at least partially based on your life experience, which is different from the mm. next person who comes along. So, yeah, that in another way is a is a way in which no movie could ever be perfect because ultimately everyone's going to come with it with their own baggage. Mm. Yeah. Just to sum up on True Grit, we had a few, uh, because, yeah, we had a few things there. A lot of, basically, my argument, if I had used True Grit, was to observe how contradictory opinions can be, because a bunch of people Mm. felt that the movie was too straight, and a bunch of people felt that the movie was too self-conscious. And again, almost all of my movies had, like, over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, but, you know, these are the ones we picked, and the people who had issue with it have issue with it for different things, which I Mm. think is a symptom of the Coen brothers' very almost laissez-faire approach to filmmaking where they just leave the audience to they're not going to Spielberg grab you by the hand and lead you through with John Williams soundtrack you know they're they're mm. going to let you to some extent shape your own experience of their film and the way that shakes out for some people is that you know this is all too self-aware and for others this is all too aimless all right um mm. my first pick is the seventh seal oh, okay the seventh seal is Bergman and yes. it's my favorite Bergman, uh, crucially. Although Wild Strawberries is also sublime, but I think The Seventh Seal represents everything I love about Bergman. And for a film mm. about death, which it is, it's about a knight who, whilst coming back from the Crusades, encounters death, who is come to take him away, but he convinces him to let him live for as long as their game of chess continues. Mm. And it's just about Max von Sydow's knight character eking out a little bit more life in the hopes that he'll be able to get home to his wife in his castle Mm. and try and come to terms or at least accept the death that has now come for him. So in many ways, this is like a character's journey through purgatory. And even though it is about death and impending death, it is potentially Bergman's most optimistic film that he made after his early um, kind of nostalgia-based period um, in his mm. early career. It's um, it's just a film about life and love and characters who are joyful and love dance and music and the troubles they get into and characters and eccentricity and all the rest of it, and it's just, I, f- I feel a delightful film, in as much as it is a film that is full of delights. And it's yeah, also right. somewhat old and established, so mm-hmm. I was very interested to see the criticisms that people had about it. Yeah, enlighten me. Mm. Isabel Quigley over at The Spectator says, When he, meaning Bergman, tries to get to grips with the real world, however allegoric- allegorically, and to ask questions about the human condition, he seems bankrupt. So again, very subjective there. I feel mm. it's taking it's taking on potentially the biggest questions that could be asked of the human condition, specifically, mm. 
you know, man's relationship to God, if there is a God, and the nature of faith and the, ro the role it plays in people's lives, how one can approach death, how one can be joyous in the face of death. Like the scene where Max von Sydow just mm. enjoys a moment with the acting troupe of eating strawberries with friends, you know, and just finds it's, yeah. it's the moment of greatest happiness he achieves in the movie. And that's wonderful. It, it may be simple, but it, it does feel profound in its way. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's interesting. I sort of go between the both of you. I the, personally found oh, I found the movie a little abstruse. I um I actually I really struggled to connect with it and um I oh. felt a bit pushed out come the end of it. Interesting. Um yeah, having having very little emotional attachment. Mm. I could admire the, the the technical brilliance of the film, but it would be mm. Yeah, I guess that's a, that's a pretty good example of that actually. Um okay. I I can appreciate its its qualities, but without that emotional attachment and you would presumably struggle to nothing. point to one thing and say, that's the reason I didn't invest in this. Yeah. The, the, the problem is when I don't connect with something, my brain switches off. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a dopamine issue. There's a, there's a very specific kind of ADHD boredom where you just don't, your brain feels like it's dying. So it's, um, it's, it's very hard to remember something. All I can remember are sort of abstract shots of, of mm. faces. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard one to discuss academically that, but I remember feeling like blocked out emotionally. I think in this particular instance, it would be curious because, you know, to have a character on screen such as B.B. Anderson's character in that film. Yeah. Um, in that moment and her sort of joyful nature in which she's playing with her son and she's got her, um, her husband, uh, the sort of circus leader character and they're playing games together and, you know, mm. just generally being alive in such a sort of mm. earnest and engaging way to have two people watch that and one of them find it to be just incredibly endearing and the other to mm. you know literally have their brain shut down and not take it in is it's, it just shows that really there's no there's no way really to quantify that it's just going to come down yeah. to personal preferences and things that will be very difficult to arrive at by breaking down you know images sound you know is it because this yeah. shot isn't long enough is it because this reaction doesn't feel yeah. authentic enough it's you know it just further highlights the how subjective this whole thing is we'll, we'll, we'll arrive at this later and it'll be a, like a huge realization we can we can object you can objectively discuss the the, the technical aspects of a film or, or you can you could even objectively discuss the emotional uh, resonance of the film for you an objective stating of subjective facts I mean, what I can do is describe what happens on screen, but that the relationship between the images on screen and how it, you know, activate things, activates things in your brain and in your heart, yeah. you know, is much harder to put into words. It's why film criticism can be such an inelegant art form, because you're mm. attempting to put into words, you know, mm. something that is worth substantially more than words. Mm. So, it's also much easier to criticize something that is to, to speak its benefits. It is. Um, other criticisms, Eric, Eric Henderson over at Slant Magazine says, The Seventh Seal may have done more than any other film to popularise and demonise the notion of world cinema as the boutique of the cultural intelligentsia. And on a similar note, mm. Dave Kerr over at the Chicago Reader says, It survives today only as an unusually pure example of a typical 50s art film strategy, the attempt to make the most of modern to make the most modern and most popular of art forms acceptable to the intelligentsia by forcing it into arcane antique moulds. So again, both of these people are, to some extent, I think, trying to anticipate the intentions of the filmmaker as an attempt to appeal to a certain audience. 
And you mm. see this a lot. You see people saying, oh, well, this was not made for me, i.e., you know, I don't need to like it. I don't, I, it was not intended mm. for me to like it. Therefore, I'm justified in doing so, which is interesting. Mm. Um, here, they're both suggesting that this was made for some sort of class of university attending, you know, intelligentsia mm. who are going to use this as what an excuse to enjoy a film it's very odd and um it's a daily express argument isn't it and potentially it's 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 a curious one that one because it's um Mm. i don't know kind of presenting this as like a very cynical marketing strategy this Mm. film as opposed to any sort of attempt at pure expression which i don't know i'd just be i mean we've done it before you know we're we're happy to include to accuse dennis dugan of just um appealing to the lowest common denominator and not actually putting in any effort because it feels like mm. that is apparent in his films and what's curious is some people can watch the seventh seal and feel that way that the film is as a lack of uh, as a result mm. of a lack of effort and just a cynical attempt to tick boxes so yeah yeah it's curious to see the same arguments being used to attack you know such disparate things but you wouldn't want to take any of that passion out of uh out of mo- movie criticism mm. it's all part of the part of the fun eh? i guess so yeah it's just part of yeah, people being passionately angry about things. We will come to a critic later on, though, who just, yeah, <laughs> represents what I don't like about that side of things. But anyway, what is your second? My second. So, um, Lewin Davis actually is in my top ten now. Mm. Oh, I've, right. I've reassessed after after that umpteenth watch. I think Seven Seasons is in my top twenty, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right. I just do <laughs> like a film about making music is the thing. <laughs> right. Um, the second film. It's not not really about that at all, but it is in my top 10. Mm. And it's surprising coming from a director who I don't think I've enjoyed an, a single other one of her works. Oh, oh right. kind of kind of the virgin suicides. It's uh, Lost in Translation, mm. which at, at first thought did not strike me as a, as, well, I see as a perfect movie. Thinking about it a little more, just going a little deeper, did, did lead me to decide that actually, again, it's a, it's a film where it's flaws are all just a part of the characters and mm. it's all about perspective so two americans who end up for different reasons in a hotel in tokyo suffering from insomnia they meet and connect and that's it really most of it is told from the perspective of, of their getting to know each other um we get little snippets of other characters mm. who do seem kind of broad strokes but then that's just the nature of having these bit players on the outside of this relationship that you've got with this person. They can they can seem so inconsequential or um, what are you going to know about them in, in the one minute that you got to know them? Mm. They're offhand and dismissive and it just it further, iso- further isolates these characters. And the characters themselves are not particularly good people. They're not bad people, but they're kind of dicks sometimes. Sure. Bob Harris, played by Bill Murray, mm. cheats on his wife. But sure. you're only thinking about the betrayal to Scarlett Johansson in it. Mm. You're not thinking, oh no, his wife and kids back home. Yeah. Go- gosh, it-, it is a very subjective movie. You know, it's about sure. sub- subjective experience of finding somebody in this in this foreign country. Ad- adding to that, the music, albeit non-original, is a curated soundtrack, and each one, tr- you know, mm. triggers that same emotional, that like pale blue resonance. Um, I've come to associate with the movie, which I think is just Tokyo in a dawn. Mm. Looking at criticisms, yeah. Um, somebody said there was an element of pronounced bitchiness in the movie. I did wonder about that. I wondered if that was someone who was sort of more savvy of the behind-the-scenes stuff invo- involving um, Sophia Coppola and Spike Jones. If um, yeah, if that was she does, thing, but... she does have like that that Woody Allen 
element to a movie of, sure. of drawing all secondary characters as these self-obsessed, vapid yeah. s- uh, like socialites. Yeah, but and if- I, th- I think personally, it's excused by the fact that they are these these broad stroke people that you meet and then never see again. Um, mm. It just felt very, very real. Um, one main criticism which is leveled at most Sofia Coppola movies is, oh, poor rich Americans yeah. having emotions and having depression. Sorry for having an emotion that money can't cure. I, I I fucking hate that argument. I hate it in every single film that I see when people are like, oh, poor person with with depression. I feel like we've used it at least once in like... Um... No, you used it for um, eat, love, pray, love or whatever it's oh, called. Oh, yeah, I, I defend, remember that. And I defended it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. I, I, I obviously can get it. I can get the idea that... And, and it's it's curious actually how similar a lot of the criticisms here are to Inside Quillen Davis, the... Mm. idea of aimlessness and that the uh, sufferings experienced by the main characters are you know sufferings that they could potentially get away from um mm. ultimately i think if someone comes to this and does say that this is you know a film about what happens when you are free of material concerns to an extent where the main concern in your life becomes one of lack of direction you know mm. it's i can see how some people would see that kind of depression as being something of a privilege you know, considering the amount of suffering that goes on elsewhere to get to the point where mm. you can actually concentrate on just how meaningless your life is. But that's that's not just a preserve of the wealthy, though. Oh, no, I, I get to feel that as well, but I have to acknowledge that that's also to some <laughs> well, extent... Privilege. <laughs> that's also yeah. to some extent a privilege, because it's, you know, most days I don't have to worry too much about where my next meal is going to come from, which yeah. would be a much more urgent concern than, hey, I'm going to die in about 70 years. It's like, I could die this week. <laughs> yeah, if I don't find the money somewhere for a sandwich, because I want. But, but then, do we still going to shop at Pret <laughs> even when I'm starving? <laughs> There's a movie right there, but it it just feels so. It's it's ultimately dismissive. It's really unsympathetically dismissive. What I can't can't make a movie about an, an emotional struggle. Everything has to be about a, a, a deep global yeah. issue. No, of course, you know, and if, it's it's just it's going to appeal to. It's going to speak to different people, and there are some people who are just going to feel that this is too far outside of their own experience, yeah, or that the sort of I don't know, maybe the envy that kind of comes in with some of the um, yeah. these issues. Because I mean, certainly you know some of the Terence Malick's that we've watched at various points, you do just think, oh, just cheer up for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> you're rich enough to buy this island you're on. You know, it's just I know I I know that this is bias. That's what this is. It's just personal bias. But again, that is something that you're going to bring Unfortunately, in with you. We're, we're, we're 99% bias as humans. Yeah. It's 99% bias and 1% water. <laughs> and that's the bit that made the difference. That's the bit that's going to heal us all. <laughs> yeah, it's curious. I mean, I I really enjoy Lost in Translation, and it's it's mm. as someone who has felt that particular separation from a film as a result of just how wealthy its characters are. This is not one of the films that made me feel that way mm. yeah it does a you know of anything surely we all i mean the reason people like stuff like the crown is because you want to reassure yourself that at the very least the people at the top are miserable <laughs> you don't want to yeah. you don't want to watch a movie about how fucking great their lives are you know and how fantastic it is but it's yeah. interesting the aimlessness um criticism coming in again is um is interesting but yeah it's just about whether or not these particular stories speak to you i guess yeah unfortunately <laughs> my next entry is ladybird Greta Gerwig's uh, almost universally acclaimed um, drama about a young girl trying to live a life, trying to get into um, get her head in school in spite of yeah. personal issues and just a sort of general lack of confidence. And so we come to criticism. 
Well, I guess, yeah, uh, we, we sp- I spoke about it a fair amount in my favourite movies of 2017. It was just a movie that really got me on board with its main character yeah. and I found very endearing. It was in my top honest. ten as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's outstanding. There's a guy called Cole Smithy who raises some interesting okay. points regarding the film's attitude to its own gay and minority characters, but frankly buries those points in hostility and general <laughs> assholery. So... Yeah, I think it would be more interesting to talk about those things on their own. Um, I think he's being okay. deliberately provocative to try and get attention based on his other reviews. He also reviewed Moonlight as a movie to uh, okay. make white people cry um, entirely. And, okay. and, you know, you just have to pour through paragraphs and paragraphs of just like, I was right and everyone else is wrong. His tagline Bile. is Cole Smitty, the smartest yeah. film critic on earth or something <laughs> like that. And it's just like, fuck you, okay. guy. But Sounds like a Maddox claim. You want to argue that the... Um, you know, that she reacts primarily selfishly to finding out that her boyfriend is gay. Yes, she does, but that's kind of, that is the point of, you know, her reaction. Yeah. But, you know, in the end, she gets vindicated, but it's very much about a woman who is not, Ladybird is not paying attention to the other people in her life, mm. not to Beanie Feldstein, not to, you know, her parents. Yeah. She's entirely caught up in her own struggle for identity. And if you want to read that as them being a bad person, fair enough. Cole Smitty went to her head and accused her of being a Trump supporter in some what? weird way. But okay. I don't know what the fuck he was going on about. Don't read Cole is Smitty. It, is it, is it definitely not a parody account? I don't think like so. Like the hardest working parodist. <laughs> Jesus. Fucking Al Murray gone rogue, maybe. <laughs> Watch out. You don't want that. Fucking hell. <laughs> uh, it's, it's all got a place. But it's, yeah, you can argue those points. But ultimately, when you're telling a story about a main character who is inherently selfish, who gradually, slowly learns to be a bit more aware of the world mm. around her, which I think is what, you know, happens in the final scene where she calls her mother and is, like, I, I think, because in some, in this really great way, her mother, who is the character she has the most tension with, becomes the first person she truly mm. relates to. And she calls her and says something like, you know, I think I'm having a similar experience that you had, or I think I'm in the same church as you or something. I forget now, but whatever. Yeah. It it becomes a case that she has an experience outside of herself for the first time. And it's like this big, you know, step, but I can totally see how some people would take issue with a story about a character who is inherently selfish. Mm. But again, just hopefully films are there to help you experience things beyond your own perspective and personality types that, yeah, are different from your own. It reminds me of the Guardian article after Sam Rockwell won the Oscar for his portrayal mm. of that character from Three Billboards. Yeah. Of how disappointing it was that a racist character who didn't get his comeuppance uh, would be awarded with an Oscar. Mm. And it was the strangest disconnect between fiction and reality that I think mm. I've ever read. You know, an Oscar based on performance was suddenly an issue because of the character he portrayed. Yeah. I mean, the Oscars... The Oscars in general, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff tied up with the Oscars in which it needs to not only be presenting to the best thing, but also, you know, potentially the most important thing, you know, which is why people had issues with Green Book winning. Um, hmm. Yeah, it, it's complicated. The conversations around the Oscars, unfortunately, become as arbitrary as the actual Oscars themselves. And you yeah. do have to wonder what the Oscars now really represent and you know if they do represent this new thing you know turning audience attentions to stories and perspectives that are urgent or in some way need to be Mm. seen that's fine but it could do with being more overtly about that because at the moment the ambiguity there of you know best actor or best picture i think is causing confusion i I wasn't aware of that at all um Mm. as far as i was aware it was just an award for the best actor or best Mm. supporting actor in this case yeah 
as decided by a panel of very old white guys. I don't know. What it represents, the significance of it, is entirely arbitrary and assigned by us. Alright, well, moving on to other criticisms, we've got Ernesto Diaz-Martinez, over at Reformer, who mm. says the film has achieved some notoriety for the cultural climate uh, that Hollywood is experiencing at this time. If Hollywood wanted to nominate a woman, they could name Eliza Hitmet or Catherine Bigelow. And this represents a really uh, a big problem, I feel, that faces... Um, both female directors, minority directors, and whatever you know, culture the films happen to come out in, um, mm. the issue becomes: it's not enough for the film to be great; it has to be the best one. Yeah, you know, if we're gonna pick out a woman to be the first recipient of the best director, she yeah. needs to be the best female director who's ever been. And if there's anyone more deserving, regardless of whether or not she made a film this year, because I don't think Bigelow. I don't think Lady Bird came out the same year as Detroit. I might be wrong in that respect, but yeah, it's just it becomes this it's ridiculous thing where <laughs> it is better than Detroit, aside from anything else. But it becomes this ridiculous thing where you know, it, I mean, those pressures are impossible. It's almost a miracle that Black Panther was as well regarded as it was because it was under so much yeah. pressure to be the black superhero movie. You yeah, know, the one that people at you know the one that everyone can get behind. The fact that it was also great is you know <laughs> fantastic and just. Oh god, I'm sure if you looked into criticisms of that, you'd find plenty of people saying, "Well, actually, Blade was better," or you know, whatever else. Yeah, it's like, for sure. How is that a criticism of this? You know, it's just yeah. Oh, fucked. Like it must seem fine to the person making that argument, but <laughs> taking a step I back, mean, <laughs> to some extent, it feels a bit like one-upmanship as well. It's like, oh, you think this female director is great, but this female director, who fewer of you have heard of, she's the real hero and the one that we yeah. should be celebrating. And it's just like, fuck you. This movie has the cultural attention for a minute. Let it have its minute and don't be one yeah. of the people shitting on it because there are bound to be enough of those. Um, two people who were who were more um, you know, engaging with the film on its own terms, Alicia Queen over at Alicia Queen says just like its title character, Ladybird is quirky and sentimental, but despite best attempts, never really defines itself in any meaningful way. So again, it's this idea of how much do you hit people over the head with what your movie is actually about? Because mm. if you do that, too many people will say it's obvious. So I think yeah. when you try to make a movie that is in any way nuanced, you run the risk of people just saying, oh, well, there's nothing here. The interesting thing there is that, for me, the movie is about Ladybird trying to define mm. herself in any meaningful way. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> again, that... the thing is, if you portray uncertainty, then people will just yeah. see uncertainty. Well, that's, that is how cinema works. What what is this film about? They didn't tell me. Yeah, Eric Estrada said the same thing. Sunny uh, Garage. Um, it is unfortunate. It is an unfortunate game in which a film seeks its identity while chasing a ghostly character who, in turn, seeks her own personality. And it's like you're mm. criticizing the movie for its theme. Yeah. You know, and frankly, I felt she did have a personality, a fantastic one. You know, yeah, she's very strong sure. and assertive and misguided and self-interested, mm. but ultimately you know, is a character that you can engage with and to call her sort of ghostly Finn f just feels mm. entirely illogical. But yeah, hey. and the, the movie itself was bursting with personality. Absolutely. It's perfectly mirroring Lady Bird's, you know, demeanor and approach to life. I'm really struggling to think of criticisms. I'm, I'm similar to you. I adore mm. this film. Um, <laughs> even, yeah. even down to, I remember remarking on how I haven't seen secondary characters that well realized yeah. in a long time. Booksmart is probably the, the most recent example of that um yeah but before characters, that it was just characters who felt like they had their own shit going on you know yeah, without exactly. feeling like you were missing out on it just felt like oh they've got their own internal struggles and it's a movie about the rest of the world just wrestling to grab you know um ladybird's attention 
you know, mm. and I think ultimately Timothée Chalamet's character kind of represents the risk of going too far into herself because he is mm. just entirely, completely withdrawn, completely cynical, doesn't see the value in anything around him, yeah. you know, and that's ultimately where she ends up sort of heading towards. So, yeah, mm. it, it's about a movie that wrestles with cynicism, which could be read as cynical, I guess, to people who are kind of about to intention, who maybe don't give credit to Greta Gerwig's direction. Yeah. And think, oh, yeah. this is an accident that it's about this. Yeah, I guess the problem is if you don't like something, you're not going to be engaged with it any more than you have to, unless unless yeah. you are so minded, maybe like you. Yeah. I don't mean that in a bad way. And I can point people towards my recent review of Tenet, because Tenet is a film that, without spoiling anything, of course, that I can recognise mm. its flaws as being inherently yeah. Nolan-esque, and yet something that I love in spite of those flaws. So yes. I'll never talk myself down or up as a result of considering a film's technical, you know, quality yeah. it'll only ever help explain my emotional reaction mm. uh but yeah anyway what's your last one As- assuming that you went for um that you were going to go with the other one of, of this genre um and maybe you <laughs> haven't um i've gone with the terminator 2 uh, okay i do have notes on die hard but i haven't gone for it okay cool i was considering <laughs> die hard as well um, right die hard perfect action movie is it the perfect movie it's no time to discuss because we're discussing the terminator 2 <laughs> i think for a couple of reasons, the way the the, milfie, the way the movie the builds the its narrative, the way the milfy does its um milf business, thing. yeah, yeah, building the narrative, it's just it's just such a great story. It's quite a, it is it's a simple one made to f- f- seem gr- greater than it is, perhaps because of the scope um, yeah. and the cast involved. The way it builds on the original as well. Obviously, the first mm. one is a really great horror movie, and this is an action horror or an mm. action with horror elements, I suppose. Mm. That's right, yeah. The escalation of it, um, the fact that there's the, the action of, you know, now the ter- Terminator is on our side, but he now has to contend with something twice as capable as him. This, hmm. um, well, more than equal, an opposite reaction. Hmm. Um, it, it's in, in terms of action movies, it's just the, the perfect perfect way of uh, setting up, devising and telling a sequel. And the three-way, three-way dynamic is a really great accompany, accompaniment to the story and a really great way of letting hmm. us understand and get insight into this world and the politics the the three very different characters the the terminator for Mm. one um who is is kind of a blank slate with his one directive um sarah connor obviously and then john connor i guess the way it's set up so the three of them are are all learning from each other as they progress the story Mm. is just such an effective way of doing this yeah it it, it is the, the the blueprint to a perfect action movie i think um, yeah. Does that make it a, a perfect movie? Now, interestingly, it obviously gets into genre. If this was a romantic movie, it obviously wouldn't be considered by me as a perfect movie, but it's an action movie. I consider it a perfect action movie. It stands to reason that it's a perfect movie. Otherwise, you have to start judging every movie <laughs> um, on terms that don't apply to it. Yeah, it's interesting the idea that genre would bring expectations that are different and perhaps easier to measure. You know, a, a movie mm. that is perfect in the context of the expectations of the genre. I remember Roger Ebert in his review of The Raid, a negative review of The Raid, or uh, said that he always tried to review movies on their own terms, the success mm. to which they achieve what they were set out to do, which is, you know, kind of coming back to the first thing I said on this, which is that that's not necessarily the best way to review it because you won't necessarily know what the movie was trying to do. But mm. with Terminator 2, it's interesting how many of the negative reviews have fixated on the original. And are saying that the original huh. was a tighter, more coherent idea than the second one, which is curious. I think Terminator 2 is a different idea. It's if the first yeah. movie, 
you know, has all of this really subtle and kind of menacing stuff about the idea of the future and can we make a significant enough change now than the second one. Well, not even that, really. The first one's about the sort of menace of the future. The second one is mm. kind of about can we have a positive impact on it and can that involve a minigun? Yeah. It's, um... <laughs> tick, tick. <laughs> it is, it's wonderful in terms of its genre fills. It really is. I feel like you'd be hard pushed to argue that it doesn't handle its action brilliantly in terms of mm. having an emotional involvement in the characters, putting them in danger, putting them regularly in the worst situation they can be in with the worst disadvantages, you know, mm-hmm. putting them in a car that's slower and shittier than the car that the T-1000's in and just, yeah. you know, constantly ramping up that tension. It's pretty great. Um, and in terms of stunts, pyrotechnics, gunfights, it's all mm-hmm. all top level. To then come at it with... I don't know, what other criticisms are we seeing here? I think a lot of the critics, to be fair, are taking it on those terms and are just arguing that, I don't know, that it seems to... I mean, to be fair, one thing that you don't necessarily have, I guess, is in the first movie, it's very simple. The Terminator is going to keep coming after you. We have to keep running. We can only keep so far ahead. Mm. With Terminator 2, you introduce these subplots, the the whole thing of heading out to Mexico and getting all the guns, and then the side mission to take out uh, Miles Dyson, and then, okay, we're going to take out Cybernet, and it's kind of amping up and getting bigger and bigger, and there's a good chunk of the movie there where the T-1000 isn't actually really doing anything. And, you know, if you did, of course, take all that stuff out, people would just accuse it of being a retread of the first one, so Mm. you won't be able to please everyone with something like this. No. Yeah, this is what I mean by Mm. escalation. A sequel is is generally expected to escalate and bit and build on the original yeah i guess that's the risk you take when when yeah. you do try and change it but kudos for for changing it a and b making it something that is very much its own thing and flawlessly enjoyable yeah but again we also have this emotional connection because of the time we saw it this, this is a very nostalgic mm. movie for us as well so you know the mm. idea of comparing it to the first terminator which is a movie that neither of us saw as much you know might yeah. seem you know, crazy to us, but makes entirely logical sense to someone reviewing it in 1992. Yes. When the first movie yeah, would be sure. in recent memory. Yeah. Mm. And mm, pretty much like The Last Jedi right. and Force Awakens, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> it? Yeah, it's again, coming down to that baggage. Briefly coming over to Die Hard, just because I'm not going to cover it, but it's <laughs> it's curious, some of the things. A lot of it was about human drama getting lost amid spectacle. You know, Blood and Thunder, says David Sterrett of the Christian Science Monitor, but and um, he, you know, targets the, the violence of the film and so there you're in an interesting mm. thing of values you know the values of the christian science monitor which is that this is a character who resolves his situations through violence yeah. which is you know the what action movies are about and you get into a whole conversation yeah. there about screen violence versus real world violence it's yeah. you know its own thing but it does further emphasize that the values of the person sat in that theater is going to affect their enjoyment of something you mm. know that could be the best of what it is you know yeah, and that's a whole other discussion to have. It is. I mean, we're you, not going like, to respond. Enjoying violence. Yeah, I mean, the best seal clubbing video, like the best one, the yeah. one that really shows off the value of the enjoyment of seal clubbing, <laughs> is not going to mean much to us, you know, because it's no. seal clubbing. So, <laughs> unless it yeah. makes me think about my fractured relationship with my parents, <laughs> who were seals. <laughs> Very unfortunate situation. He got killed by seals. <laughs> but they were racist seals who hated other seals yeah. and proved of clubbing. It's like, how? How do you approve of this? Yeah, and people, Richard Schnickel, I've got to be honest, this is quite piffy. Time magazine, he says, uh, in the first half of director John McTernan's movie, Willis wears an undershirt. In the second half, he gets rid of it. And that's pretty much it for his performance. <laughs> Which I disagree with, but yeah. it's quite cute. That that seems applicable to a later Bruce Willis performance. 
many well of them. yeah exactly i mean again we have the context of later bruce willis and we can look back and say no that is fucking charismatic bruce willis so so yeah even die hard which we have described as the perfect action movie ultimately being the perfect action movie is not much good to someone who doesn't like action movies so well that brings me on to my last one and are there Mm. any others i'd like to talk about we talked about true grit i had i had eternal sunshine of the spotless mind in the backups just in case you knocked off any as did i oh interesting um did you happen upon the will self evening standard article uh no i didn't um i was i was reading a reddit thread for uh (laughs) but but which was also mentioned in in a separate article i think it was a new york well will self really fucking excels on putting really good arguments in a way i find absolutely insufferable um like really just valid points and it's like yes that is true but you know uh, most of the argument there was just about um largely again about ideas of pretension are the ideas here smaller than they seem you know, is all of yeah. this artifice and, like, stage lighting to distract from the fact that, ideas-wise, this film is light. Um, mm. And uh, what was there was one I did quite like, Terry Lawson at the Detroit Free Press. What's lacking is what the movie is ostensibly about. The heart that so often leads us to fall in love with the wrong people at the wrong time. Now, what I think he mm. happened along there is actually one of the reasons I really like the film, is that it does identify mm. why this relationship, you know, is so yeah. important for both Carrie and for um, Winslet, yeah. you know. Yeah. Other people who had issues with Carrie, you know, playing the character that he was at the age that he was. And it's like, okay, maybe I can, you know. It's, to me, he doesn't mm. look his age. He seems like the sort of douchebag, um, you know, younger yeah. guy, which he's meant to be. So that didn't bother me so much. God, but... That didn't even enter my head at all. <laughs> I just, I thought the characters were the same age yeah so did i he's not it turns out but i guess if if you're writing <laughs> yeah. in 2004 then maybe Damn. you'd have a more acute awareness of how old um carrie was what age difference was there then um you have a look i'm gonna read will self's um evening standard thing <laughs> and then we'll come back to the audience <laughs> yeah. if kaufman and co-writer and director uh michel gondry michel gondry could have confronted Joel's right. commitment phobia in the memories of his childhood, which they do use to great visual effect, uh, this could have been a deeper proposition altogether. Or, on the other hand, if they yeah. hadn't fallen victim to the high-profile casting, they could have made a tight little film about 30-somethings on the cusp of settling down. I suspect that the problem lies with Kaufman himself. His earlier screenplays show an imbibing preoccupation with childlessness, but an inability to articulate what it is about uh, par- oh, fucking well self, parturition uh, that he finds quite so disturbing. I had hoped that with Eternal Sunshine, he would have moved forward, but I suspect that he cannot uh, until he can confront his own issues. So basically saying you didn't go far enough with this. You know, why is Joel yeah. so upset about the idea of having kids with Kate Winslet? You know, it's, it's, in, it's yeah, just some people wanting to probe that, further, I guess. That doesn't seem relevant to the, the idea of the film. Well, it's the reason they broke up, which, you know, to be fair, you could have made it about anything. And I guess that's... The problem yeah. they're having it's like why use child anxieties you know here when it could have been just a fight about anything you know one of those fights that just leads to people yeah. breaking up it's this huge seismic thing that then doesn't necessarily get resolved by the time that they both agree to just have a relationship anyway but that's the point they mm. the, in spite of everything it's, it's always worth giving it another go mm. um because of because of what they did have yeah um and also they can't can't quite remember and it's, it's always worth experiencing and and mm. even if you're going to lose it in that beautiful last scene though where they do confront each yeah. other you know she says the problem with our relationship is that you're going to get embarrassed and like you know irritated at me because of how big my personality is and i'm gonna get bored of you and that that feels like yeah. enough that's that's good reasons for two people to yeah. and that also feels overcomable you know just yeah. 
coin a phrase. That's something they can both work at. Anxieties mm. about children could be a fornier issue, but hey, it's just it's just one scene where that gets mentioned. Did you find uh, out about the age gap? Thirteen years. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's up. Kate Winslet's only forty-four. Oh wow. Do you know how fucking old Rachel Vice is? She looks fucking great. She's like in her fifties, I think. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. I'm got to be the youngie in Glenn over here. <laughs> All right, my last one then. Enough about films we're not covering. My last one is Toy Story. That was on my backups. Right. There are no negative reviews of Toy Story. It's one of those films that has 100%. Yeah. So, you know, I don't need to tell you. In fact, I I didn't have it just because I I thought that you would have it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a wonderful film. It was like the fourth film I ever saw at the cinema, I think. Hold on, let me me count them out. Aladdin, Lion King, Batman Forever, Toy Story. Yeah, fourth. Um, Serbian Story. (laughs) <laughs> and after after the Batman <laughs> Serbian story next after Batman Forever you know it had a lot it had a hefty amount of work to do to impress me you swore off cinema forever at that point <laughs> I fell forever into Batman Forever and <laughs> yeah it's a film with no negative reviews I can only when leveling issues with it maybe suggest the tech has aged a bit because this is mid 90s mm-hmm. CGI and don't get me wrong it's fucking amazing for that but having watched Toy Story 3 and 4 you go back and watch Toy Story and like the animation on Woody's face, who is the sort of most mm. human character, you know, in the thing. And Sid, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> you know, you have to <laughs> you have to suspend that in a way that maybe you don't have to do for old hand-drawn animation, because that obviously yeah. achieved a level of its own kind of realism. You know, it's, it's a bigger issue in gaming. It's why, you know, you can play SNES and Sega games and think, oh, this looks great. And then you play like a PlayStation 1 game and it's like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because pixels and 3D graphics have not developed that charm that uh, simple sprites have. No. There's a, there's a limit that hand-drawn animation and Sega can reach. Yeah. And, and then it's sort of, it's a plateau mm. of varying styles. It's curious. So the only real criticism I could offer personally about Toy Story is that maybe I prefer the second one, but I don't even know about that. So really, <sighs> there's some good stuff in that. It's hard. It's hard to judge which of these is best. But literally, that's it. The only point of comparison, the only point of criticism you can begin to approach Toy Story with is: is it as good as the other Toy Stories? You know. And yeah, it's curious comparing it to things like. Well, so let me go through the thought. It makes me wonder: could only a kids' film be considered perfect? Because another 100%er is Paddington. To some extent, when you come at these movies with criticism, you almost feel... And that's not to say it's easier to make kids' movies. It's definitely not. We've proven that with things like, you know, fucking Emoji Movie and Planes and such. It's not easy to make kids' films. But could only a kids' film suspend people's disbelief enough and get enough people on board with the idea that we need to express a simple idea to children that families can enjoy as well, that they could be considered perfect? And it's curious to Gosh, see some yeah. of the later attempts because Camilla Long at the Sunday Times accused Inside Out of being the studio straining to best itself. And Jay Olsen at Cine Mixtape okay. said of it, uh, Inside Out, the movie is frequently adorable, so it's liable to get more than a few existential crises in viewers entirely unprepared to handle them. Like, that was the criticism, that it was too much for kids. So, Oh, okay. So Toy Story is just the right amount to take on because there's there's uh, videos out there that theorize that actually what's happening is the parents are going through a divorce, mm-hmm. which is why the dad is never around and the family is in the process of moving into a smaller house. Uh-huh. You know, and that doesn't get picked upon because it's actually about, you know, Woody's anxieties, you know, as yeah. a toy. And, and that's immediately accessible to kids and incredibly, 
you know, rich for adults who can yeah. relate to these things. It's it's something that can unify people. So yeah, I just wonder if a movie like Toy Story is the only kind of movie that could really get everyone on board, and I mean almost everyone. Yeah, I'm because it do, it does kind of put in place a few limitations. Sure, and it's just that Toy Story is the rare beast that actually manages to excel under those limitations. Mm. But then. You know, you just look at Inside Out, which is a movie that has all the charm, all the humor, mm. and has big ideas and big ambitions, and mm. that locks some people there's, out. There's a, there's a difference, I suppose, in the travel aspect of Inside Out, um, the sort of mm. journey adventure yep. bit, and Toy Story is a bit better contained, and it's 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 more character driven. Certainly, it's compact. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to think this through. I I think <laughs> if if I if I had to and just be like the hmm. most pedantic I could possibly be. Sure. I'm sure I could find, you know, I could find lines in there that I thought were crap or, you know, just, just like tiny little moments that didn't resonate with me. In kids movie, mo- in kids movies, there's almost always lines that I think are played a bit too broad or, yeah. you know, are just a bit, I don't know, just uh, pitched too broad for me. But, you know, mm. there's enough lines in Toy Story that are actually funny, you know, yeah. that you can forgive those things. Depends on if you, if, if, if you were going for literally perfect, literally airtight, hermetically mm. perfect, yeah. then you. But but obviously, in the real world where that isn't obtainable, yeah. just by definition, <laughs> then. Well, I mean, I, th- I think you know you might be onto something. Maybe I don't know. It's I think in conclusion, I don't think a film can be considered empirically perfect. Toy Story can get close. No. But even that, if we were to go watch it, you know, today, we'd find scenes that haven't aged as well as we thought, or yeah, sure. character motivations are a bit weird. I mean, all of his friends do turn on him. There's that race and blood scene. That's really weird. <laughs> that is a weird scene. The scene where, fuck me, the first thing that came to mind was um, Pusher, <laughs> Nicholas Wending <laughs> reference thing, and I was trying to like make a parallel to that, and I was like, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> not now. <laughs> not now. Not this isn't the time or place. You know, the, the, his friends all do turn on him at the drop of a fucking hat. It's one mm. aspect of it. That's a little quick. Yeah. I don't know. Even going through all of these negative reviews and assessing the validity of each argument, it's just it's important for me that film criticism be a debate among poets and not mathematicians. It should mm. be an informed and varied discussion guided by logic but driven by emotion. And there must never be an answer as conclusive as this is a flawless film. No. If we could settle on one, I think it would make the conversation about film poorer. I think it's probably good that even people like this fucking asshole who thinks that Lady Bird is a Trump supporter be out there contributing these idea- so-called ideas to people is a good thing in its own horrible way. <laughs> you know, it forces us to reflect on it and maybe think, God, does he have a point? No, he doesn't. You know, but you had to think for a sec. <laughs> watching movies, watching TV, criticism of these things, it's it's an emotionally charged process. And it, yeah. it, it would not be the same if if we couldn't see a negative review from somebody and say, fuck off, I hope they die. Yeah. This, they're, they're literally my enemy now. I don't know. It, it's it's just part of being alive that you find... Yeah. That you differ on experience. And it can be it can be mind-boggling. Mm. to to read a review of something that you love and have somebody yeah. say that they thought it was pretentious or that they clearly didn't land a single joke or whatever. Some, sometimes to the point where you think, well, fuck this person and everything they stand for and their family yeah. forever and ever. But it is what it is. You fucking, what, what do you want? What do you want? What are you doing it? What do you want? Fucking medal for your opinion? <laughs> Listener? I mean, it's, it's useful for us. 
we didn't because as alluded to earlier we weren't fans of boyhood the film has nearly unanimously positive reviews Mm. and that can feel a little alienating it can feel like well christ what's going on here how come everybody loves this movie and you know we don't and to then find a critic of some sorts who shares your viewpoint who says you know who is summing up the things that you think and nobody else seems to be thinking and putting it into words that you can then agree with can be really valuable And that's, you know, services that are now being afforded to the people who hate Terminator 2 and the Seventh Seal and, you know, all the rest who, you know, amidst all of the critical acclaim can seek out these sort of naysayers. And so long as they're making good points and not just being, you know, arbitrary and argumentative, Mm. can find someone who can express things that they've only felt and have struggled to put into words. And that can be a really valuable thing for film criticism. And that's how Trump gets elected. Happy. (laughs) <laughs> you happy marginalists get in the center <laughs> uh well speaking of people who got in the center paul what did the og team say about perfect movies well we did ask the og team mm. we had some responses so uh blokebusters said well if our own podcast has anything to say about it and it does and it does the martian would be number one. Oh, interesting. Very closely Very followed by both Lincoln and The Shawshank Redemption. Lincoln? The Shawshank Redemption is Paul's favourite film, but even he can admit it's not 100% perfect. It's 99.5%. <laughs> I do love The Shawshank Redemption. I feel like we talked about The Shawshank Redemption a bit in great films. It's almost a film that's ruined mm. by its reputation because it spent so mm. long at the number one spot on IMDb. I feel like people are, yeah. as a result, predisposed against it sometimes. But I, I really yeah. love that movie. It has a very special place in my heart. But um, yeah, I often some... crack jokes about it. <laughs> some interesting choices there. Lincoln, you know, often mm. regarded as a sort of um, a movie largely intended to propel Daniel Day-Lewis's performance. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you invested enough in that character and the way he speaks and that wonderful dialogue he has, yeah, I could definitely see how you would consider that to be perfect in spite mm. of, you know, potentially things you could point out and say. It's another one of those films I think could probably be pointed out and called Meandering. You know, because of mm. all these threads it has yeah. going on. And um, what was the first one? The Martian. The Martian. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's, that's really cool as a thing to put, uh, suggest. It's a really um, tight film. It's it Very tight. Very drives forward. focused. I, I think it could potentially be another one of those movies that people accuse of of being more about ideas than emotion. Um, because it is, you know, so many of the characters, like Sean Bean's character or um, Danny Glover's. Mm. Danny. Donald Glover's. Danny. Um, Donny. Donald. It's Donald, Donald in this Donald. <laughs> you know, I just sold t- solely tied up in delivering exposition around this. So, mm. yeah, it's um, yeah, a very interesting choice. And I'm very happy with that. Even then, I, yeah, that, those two characters resonated with me. And I have yeah. a bit of a tear at the end. Oh, yeah. It's, it's an emotional return. What he was going to die. He survived yeah. in spite of all the odds. Yeah. He had his thin, thin stunt double does. Chris Attaway from Revisited said, Goodfellas, the way Attaway. that film grabs you from the start and doesn't let go is, yeah. and I'm going to sound like a dick now, mesmerizing. <laughs> the world building, the swoopy camera movements, the music, the dialogue, the acting, the pace of it. I feel totally swept up in it every time I see it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I, but again, I've actually previously on this podcast, I think in the Gotti episode, talked about how Goodfellas is a film that works brilliantly in spite of the fact it breaks so many cinematic rules. Yeah. You know, it has narration almost throughout the entire thing describing its characters in a turmoil and, you know, exposition. And yet in spite of that is not disengaging like you'd expect it to yeah. be. It's very curious, but a really wonderful film. Yeah. Pick. 
And he's he's provided a gif of um, slicing the, the garlic clove with a razor blade, which is oh yeah, all you need really. <laughs> he said slicing. I thought, oh Jesus, where are we going? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what's what's this gif? Ooh, a lot of slicing. So I'm going to chunk of the pie for Rayola. Uh, Crabflix and Chill said, we're going with Jurassic Park. For us, it's the perfect yeah. balance of action slash character development plus general concept. It has some fantastic, yeah. well-scripted philosophical conversations and the CGI still holds up after all this time. Impressive and far superior to any of its sequels. It's wonderful. I talked about it in formative films. If I were mm. playing Devil's Advocate, you could say that the philosophical moments are kind of contained within those few scenes where they mm. kind of you know stop the movie so people can have a chat about ethics with you know people mm. taking on the various arguments and i remember mike stock lasso over at red letter media complaining that um the characters weren't strong in jurassic park mm. but i disagree they were natural they were yeah. extremely natural sam neill yeah, might not get a moment where he talks about his you know boyhood in vietnam or whatever but he's just such a believable and wholly formed person Yes. For me. And he has his little journey of learning how to not be incredibly irritated by kids. So <laughs> Let us know how, how you did that. It's a journey we're all on. <laughs> so yeah, but Jurassic Park is When awesome. would they be having that conversation otherwise, though? Like running away from a dinosaur. Look, I'm just saying! <laughs> well, you know, you got stuff like the quiet tree moment and such. <laughs> quiet. You know, you're going to segue to All I'm saying. I'm glad they didn't. Shh. <laughs> okay. Um, finally, Brian Hurst says, I may be old, but don't let that get in the way of anything. Never. Never. Ever. 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 I may be old, but Caddyshack is a perfect comedy. Ah. The four leads are all at the top of their game. <laughs> Again, I think the main criticism that might be directed would be aimless, because aside from this... But that's such a difficult thing for comedy, you know? It's mm. because the whole purpose of any given scene is to make you laugh. And we've talked before about how movies yeah. like Like a Boss ultimately felt like it was unstructured yeah. but that was only really because it was so yes. unfunny you know it's yeah. if you have a movie like caddyshack with these four great sort of comedic talents and you know or just a wonderful sense of chaos to it then i think there's yeah it, 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 yeah again you can't subject the same criteria to every film some films are not going to have a story and still be great some films yeah. are not going to have very strong characters and still be great it's just mm. and even if a film had all of those things perfectly it would not inherently make it great no the word aimless in itself is not a criticism yeah. or praise it entirely depends on context yeah that's it thanks ogt team those are some really good perfect movies fuck yeah paul how can people find out about the perfect us the perfect us in the parallel universe <laughs> where hitler was killed or was or wasn't you're a very dry intellectual talking about poverty and i'm the host of bbc radio merseyside have a halcyon future um <laughs> you just have to live it my friends you have to wait for that moment um it is coming we're working on it we've got a we've got a business strategy um <laughs> it's been ratified by someone who tells us he's an expert but whilst that's happening you can continue to listen to us on your favorite podcasts including this one right here but also the better ones for cool people you can send us an email on twitter um, if you go to at OGT pod and same for Facebook, we put out the calls for the OGT we there do, all the time. Sometimes they show up. Sometimes they show up. And occasionally, Paul, uh, we post the same picture of the kebab that, that Paul had in June just just to keep the dream alive. Just to remind you. I mean, really, by eating kebabs, all you're ever dr- trying to do is stay alive. <laughs> I find trying to feel something. And I think that's fucking beautiful, man. Absolutely. Other than that, you can send us an email at ogtpod at gmail.com. And we have a Patreon where for as little as $1 a month, you get exclusive access to exclusive content exclusive. This week, 
the Paul's pitch for X-Men Apocalypse came out, at least the the, the Goodman part. <laughs> the good the one. Salt part coming in a couple of weeks. Yeah, the salty one. We've got a Fifty Shades coming up. It's all happening right over there on Patreon space. All of the time. Thank you for everybody who's already uh, patronised us. We love um, it. We will be thinking up retorts to your <laughs> great insults very soon. <laughs> very soon. We've got a team working on it. We're going to get back back in touch just as soon as it's, it's feasible. I'm Paul Salt. I'm Paul Goodman. And remember, no film can ever truly be perfect, except to you. Me? You specifically.